We are going to continue our study of the book of Joshua this morning. Uh, We're going to be in Joshua chapter 5 and 6, so if you have a Bible, get there. I asked some friends of mine on Facebook this week to provide me with illustrations of advice they got from their parents that maybe they thought was a little bit odd or a little bit unreasonable when they were kids, but now that they're adults, makes a lot of sense. So uh, some of my friends chimed in, and here's some of the advice that people's parents gave them. Some of these you may have heard, some of these you may not. Uh, Start with this one. You rarely win when you're fighting against stupid. Uh, Probably as you've gotten older, that makes a lot more sense than it did when you were young. It's not my job to be your friend, but to be a parent. Uh, You probably heard that one as a kid and didn't like it, actually, at the time. Don't run with scissors. The person who shared this one actually told me that his brother bought a house, and on the first night he lived in the house, uh, grabbed a pair of scissors and began running around the house saying, I can do what I want. Look at me. I'm running with scissors. And then he tripped and fell down and poked a hole in the wall uh, of his brand new house and understood that advice. Nothing good happens after midnight, right? When you were a teenager, you probably thought everything good begins at midnight, right? But your parents says, nothing good happens after midnight. Be nice to your brother. Uh, That was actually my brother who wrote that uh, on my (laughs) Facebook wall, advice that may not have made a lot of sense when we were kids. Uh, This one, a young lady said, uh, when it came to marrying the wrong person, my dad would always say, the only thing worse than a vacancy is a filled vacancy. Uh, As you get older, perhaps you understand more of what that means. When we are young, the advice, the input, the commands that our parents give us sometimes don't seem reasonable. And we say, no, I know what I'm doing better than they do. Those of you who have kids now, you perhaps have experienced that from the other side. Don't climb on the sofa or you'll fall. I won't fall, right? You will eventually, right? You haven't yet, but you will. As you grow older, those things begin to make more sense. But when we're young, it's a combination of pride and inexperience, perhaps, that keeps us from looking at what our parents are saying and believing that it's true and that it applies to us. As we get older, we start to understand. I think often the same thing happens in our relationship with God. Uh, And God is the master at giving commands that seem strange or hard to understand or countercultural or just counterintuitive. So as you read through the scripture, you're often struck with commands that God gives us. For example, about prayer. Why would it make any sense to spend a portion of my day quietly talking to God when I often don't hear him talk back to me? What sort of power, what sort of benefit is there in such a thing? Why would it make sense for me to arrange my life around sexual purity and to reserve sex for marriage? That, in the context of the world, doesn't make any sense. Why would it make any sense for me to take some of my hard-earned money and give it away to the church, to those in need, to missionaries? That doesn't make any sense. And yet as you walk through your Christian life, you find that it's pretty frequent that God gives commands that we have a hard time understanding and we have a hard time obeying. And that, in fact, is the pattern of the Scripture. 
And the question that is continually put to us as followers of Jesus Christ is will we trust that God knows what he's doing and that through us he wants to demonstrate his character? That through us when he gives us a strange command, it's not just because he likes messing with us, but because he wants his power, his glory, his perfection to be seen in our lives. And the only way often that he can do that is to break us out of the ways of doing things that are simply fleshly those ways of doing things that make sense to us. Instead, say, I'm going to do things through you that only I can do. And if you were with us in the book of Joshua last week, we began talking about that, how Joshua is now called to lead the people of Israel, and he feels inadequate. And yet God calls him and says, Joshua, you are inadequate, but I'm going to lead you and the people into this land. And when it's all said and done, the world will look on and say, only God could have accomplished this. What we'll see this week is that he will push Joshua now beyond a point of comfort to say, Joshua and nation of Israel, I want you to follow me even when it seems like my commands are bizarre. And we see that very clearly in this story of Jericho that we're going to walk through. Primarily, it's in Joshua 6. It starts in Joshua 5. That Joshua is going to be asked to pursue a battle plan that is weird. There's no other way to put it. It really makes no sense from a worldly perspective what God is going to call them to do. Let me refresh your memory on what the people are facing. If you remember, the spies had gone into the land of Canaan to spy it out, and ten of them, all except Joshua and Caleb, had come back and said, we can't take this place because the people are giants. We are like grasshoppers in their eyes. They have huge fortified cities. Now it's 40 years later, and God is calling Joshua to go into this land. Uh, God has now led them across the Jordan River. He parted the Jordan River, and the waters stacked up on either side, and the people walked through on dry ground, just like they walked through the Red Sea when they left Egypt some 40 years later. Now they are in the land. They're on the verge of their first great conquest, and they are about to take these huge fortified cities. Let me give you just an idea of what a Canaanite city might have looked like. Several years ago, they discovered a very tall stone wall outside of Jerusalem that was built by the Canaanites who at one point had lived in Jerusalem. Hopefully you can see that. This is 26 feet high. It's made of solid stone, and you can see the man standing next to it and how small he looks in light of that wall. Now, this is not Jericho, but this is an illustration of the types of fortifications that the Canaanites had. And they would stand atop those walls, and they would just fire on you with arrows as you got close. And they've got multiple cities like this to conquer before the land is theirs. And God is saying, Joshua, I want you to lead the people in. And in fact, not only do I want you to lead them in and take this city, but I want you to do it in a way that really doesn't make a whole lot of sense in worldly terms. And as we walk through this narrative, what we will see is that God is going to call Joshua to do this in an odd way because It is his character that he wants to demonstrate, his power that he wants to demonstrate. Anybody can amass an enormous army, besiege the city over months, and then take it. God says, that's not how I'm going to have you do this, Joshua, because I want you and these nations to see how strong I am, how powerful I am, how holy I am. And this story shows us something about God that is consistent throughout the Bible. That God will often ask us to act and believe and live in ways that are contrary to our own sense of perhaps what we want to do, 
or what the world says is sane or rational because he wants his holiness, his character, his righteousness to be seen in our lives. We're going to see that as we walk through Joshua 6 this morning. All right, we're going to begin in verse 1, Joshua chapter 6. Now Jericho was tightly shut because of the sons of Israel. No one went out and no one came in. The Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and the valiant warriors. You shall march around the city, all the men of war circling the city once. You shall do so for six days. Also seven priests shall carry seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. Then on the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. It shall be that when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, and when you hear the sound of the trumpet, all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people will go up, every man, straight ahead. So Joshua the son of Nun called the priests and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and let seven priests carry seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Ark of the Lord. Then he said to the people, Go forward and march around the city and let the armed men go on before the Ark of the Lord. And it was so that when Joshua had spoken to the people, the seven priests carrying the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Lord went forward and blew the trumpets. And the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord followed them. The armed men went before the priests who blew the trumpets, and the rear guard came after the Ark while they continued to blow the trumpets. But Joshua commanded the people, saying, You shall not shout, nor let your voice be heard, nor let a word proceed out of your mouth until the day I tell you, Shout, then you shall shout. So he had the Ark of the Lord taken around the city, circling at once. Then they came into the camp and spent the night in the camp. Now Joshua rose early in the morning and the priests took up the ark of the Lord. The seven priests carrying the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord went on continually and blew the trumpets and the armed men went before them and the rear guard came after the ark of the Lord while they continued to blow the trumpets. Thus the second day they marched around the city once and returned to camp. They did so for six days. All right, on the face of it, this plan sounds strange and that's often what we see with God's plans. They are hard to understand. Now, you've read perhaps this story before, you've seen it in a cartoon or a movie or something, but just to summarize, here's what God says. I want you to go up to Jericho and I want you to take the Ark of the Covenant, which represents my presence where I reside, and the priests will walk before it, and before the priests will be the army, and behind the, the Ark will be the rear guard, and as you walk around, nobody say anything, and the priests will blow that trumpet, and you'll walk around it, and then you'll go home. You get up the next day, you walk around, priests blow the trumpet, nobody says anything, you go home. You do that for seven days. And on the seventh day, you go around seven times and then shout, and it's all going to fall down. Now that is not a typical battle plan, okay? Imagine if you were a boxer and your trainer says, this is your plan. We're going to go in the ring and you just circle the other boxer, Around and around and around. And you say, well, when do I hit? You don't hit, right? You never hit. You just walk around it. And I'm going to give you a signal and you just go, ha! And he will fall down. And you'll win. That's it. You will win. You would go, you are insane, right? I'm getting a new trainer. That is the plan. Walk around and around. And the author here of Joshua sets up the suspense. He says, they get up and they go to Jericho and they walk around once. And then they go home, they go to sleep. And he says it again, they get up, the priests go, the army goes, they walk around twice. 
And he describes two days in detail just to set up the suspense for you so you can see what exactly is going on. They walk around once, twice, three, four, five, six times. By the sixth day, you can imagine that the residents of Jericho are either terrified or they're laughing. They have no idea what is going on down there. Seventh day, they're supposed to get up and walk around seven times. Blow the trumpets. Joshua will say, shout, and the wall's going to fall down. I don't know about you. If I were one of the Israelites, I think that I would be tempted, maybe day two, day three, just to say something, right? The absolute silence might get to you after a while. You might just want to look up and go, wait till day seven, right? Or something like that. Okay? You would be tempted to say something, but God says, no, don't say anything, don't do anything. You just march around with my presence because the Ark of the Covenant with them represents the presence of God and what it symbolizes to them and to the nation of Jericho is that God is with his people and his plans are difficult to understand because he wants to show his character through them. And it's interesting, as you walk through the way God deals with his people in the Bible, This is a very consistent pattern. If you read through the prophets, you'll see with Isaiah, in Isaiah 20, that Isaiah is called to prophesy that the nation of Egypt is going to fall. And you know how God calls Isaiah to do that? Isaiah 20 says, Isaiah, I want you to walk around naked for an entire year to prophesy the destruction of Egypt. Everybody in this room is praying, don't let that be my calling, please, right? You know what he does? Ezekiel chapter 4. He tells Ezekiel, I want you to prophesy the, the siege of Jerusalem. And so you know what you need to do, Ezekiel? You need to build a little city with a brick and erect siege works against this little brick and lie on one side and then on the other side for a year. And everybody that walks by, you say, this is what's going to happen to Jerusalem. And you've got your little brick there and your little siege works and you lie down on the ground for a year. It's pretty strange. It's not just the Old Testament. As you get into the New Testament and you see the way that Jesus interacts with his disciples, you see that often he pushes them beyond the boundaries of what seems sane, particularly with Peter for some reason. If you think about it, Peter is the guy that Jesus walks up on right as they're getting to know each other and they've been fishing all night and Jesus says, hey, cast your net on the other side of the boat. And, you, and Peter says what? You know, we've been fishing all night. I'm pretty sure there aren't more fish on the left side of the boat than the right side, but whatever, you know? And he casts his net over there, and he hauls in more than he can carry. Peter's the one that he says, step out of the boat and walk to me. Right? That's not a normal thing to do. Right? Peter is the one after the resurrection and ascension of Jesus that has the vision of all the unclean animals coming down, and God says, Peter, get up and kill the unclean animals and eat them. Peter says, whoa, I'm Jewish. We don't do that. He says, no, I want you to know that my message is going to go to the Gentiles. Interestingly, Peter is also the one, many years later, 1 Peter 4, that says, when you do not follow the ways of the world, they're going to think you're strange. 1 Peter 4, 4, they are astonished when you do not rush with them into the same flood of wickedness and they vilify you, but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Peter knew that the commands of God are often strange, at least to us. When I was 
the college pastor here, I saw year after year after year how students would make choices to follow Jesus, and it would immediately put them at odds with their family or their friends. They would say, I'm going to spend six weeks this summer overseas sharing Jesus with people who have never had the chance to hear, and immediately would have family members or friends say, this is the summer, you need to get an internship and set up your career to make lots of money. And they would clash with the world around them. The ones who chose to do that for a year or two after college faced even more resistance. Those of you who decide at my job, with my family, in my relationships, I am going to pursue the ways of Jesus Christ through the power of the Spirit, you will find yourself at odds with the world around you. If you haven't already, you will. Because God will give commands that push us beyond the boundaries of what seems normal or sane in our world. And you say, is he doing that just because he wants to mess with Joshua or with me? Ultimately, no. He's doing that because he wants us to see his character, that God's plans reveal his character. God's ways show us and show the world that he is distinct, holy, different, and he calls us to be that way as well so that all of the nations will have the opportunity to see who God is. And we see this in the life of Joshua and in the story of how Jericho is conquered as well. These plans reveal the character of God. Three specific things about the character of God that we see. First of all, his faithfulness. Look at chapter 5, verses 10 through 12. While the sons of Israel camped at Gilgal, they observed the Passover on the evening of the 14th day of the month on the desert plains of Jericho. On the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate some of the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain. The manna ceased on the day after they had eaten some of the produce of the land so that the sons of Israel no longer had manna, but they ate some of the yield of the land of Canaan during that year. All right, why do they celebrate the Passover? Well, first of all, because it is the time of the year when the Passover was held. But what is the Passover? If you go all the way back, remember, to when they left Egypt, the Passover was when God sent the angel of death who killed the firstborn of every family in Egypt. And those who slaughtered a lamb within Israel and put the blood on the doorposts of their home, the angel would pass over. So every year... They commemorate that God led them out of Egypt. For 40 years in the wilderness, they have been wandering around, waiting now for God to bring them into the land. And right on the eve of going in, what do they do? They remember how God led them out. And what's the message? God was with us before. He's with us right now. God was faithful once. He'll be faithful again. The timing is not a coincidence. God wants them to remember what he did to Egypt and how he led them out because he says, what I did to Egypt is what I will do to the Canaanites and I will give you the land that I promised to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. I am the same God. What God has done once is testimony to what he will do again and he is faithful. And so as this plan unfolds, you see God's faithfulness. And because they celebrate Passover, then when he says, you know what, I want you just to walk around and around and around and the wall's going to fall down. They can look back at what he did in Egypt and say, I can trust him. 
One of the greatest stories of uh, martyrdom in the early centuries of the church relates to a man named Polycarp. Polycarp was a bishop of Smyrna during the second century, and he was arrested for refusing to burn incense to Caesar, uh, for refusing to burn incense to the emperor, which he viewed as an act of worship toward the emperor. And so he's arrested, and he is sentenced to death, and he's going to be burned at the stake. And even up to the moment that he was burned, his friends and his family were begging him to go ahead and recant, just burn the incense and save your life. And Polycarp is recorded as saying this, Eighty and six years I have served him, and he's done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king and savior? Bring forth what you will. Why did he have the confidence to say that at that moment? Because he knew a God who had promised him life. He knew a God who had overcome death in Jesus Christ. And he said, if he's been faithful to me, For 86 years, he'll be faithful to me beyond the grave. And here, on the border of Jericho, Joshua and the Israelites can look and say, God kept us alive in Egypt. He brought us out of Egypt with his power. He kept us alive for 40 years in the wilderness. Our shoes didn't wear out. Our clothes are still good. We never ran out of manna. Isn't it interesting? Right after they celebrate the Passover, they stop eating the manna. And they start eating from the land that God had promised. He says, I will be faithful to fulfill my promises. My wife and I, several years ago, decided that we were just going to create a little poster that we kept on the back of our door. And that poster included markers of the faithfulness of God, those times that he had provided even when we were afraid, even when it seemed there would not be enough, those times that he had saved us from things that we did not think we could be saved from. And so we drew little pictures and we wrote them down. And what that poster did for us was in those moments where we were afraid and we said, will God carry us through this moment? And just look at it and say, remember that time when we owed more to the hospital than we had and God provided. Remember that time when we thought our little boy was going to die in the hospital and God saved his life. Remember that time and that time and that time. If God has been with us all of these years, he's with us now. God is faithful and he will push us beyond the boundaries of our comfort to demonstrate his faithfulness, that he keeps his promises. God's plans reveal his character. We see his faithfulness. We also see his holiness. Look at verses 13 to 15 of chapter 5. Now it came about when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? He said, No. Rather, I indeed come now as captain of the host of the Lord. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and bowed down and said to him, What has my Lord to say to his servant? The captain of the Lord's host said to Joshua, Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Again, right before the battle, God calls Joshua and he says, Joshua, this is holy land. I just want to remind you, this is the land that I set apart for my purposes 
And you, my people, are called to be holy, to be set apart, which means you will do things differently, which means your battle plan won't look like their battle plan, which means your way of life won't look like their way of life. Holiness means this. It simply means set apart for a particular use, not for common use. Now, let me give you an illustration. My oldest daughter has a pink blanket that she has had since she was a baby. Uh, She calls it Wooly Blanket. All right, here's a picture of Wooly Blanket. Uh, I was unable to procure Wooly Blanket to bring it here this morning, so uh, I took a picture of it. Now, here's the deal with Wooly Blanket. Wooly Blanket is special. She sleeps with it. She used to carry it around when she was very small. She doesn't carry it around the house anymore, but it's special. If you have kids, you know often they'll have an item like this, and it's important, right? We don't let the dog play with Wooly Blanket. We don't use Wooly Blanket as a picnic blanket. It's special. Once when she was very young, maybe about three years old, uh, we went out for the day and I grabbed Wooly Blanket from the car back when she still used to carry it around and I brought it out of the car and I dropped it in a muddy puddle. And we were in a public parking lot and there was a wail of, you know, ultimate suffering that came from this child <laughs> that was heard across the parking lot and I picked it up and it was wet, and it was muddy, and I said, you know, it it can be washed, it's okay, we'll be able to wash it out, and I kind of hung it over the back of the seat, and we went on with what we were doing. She reminded me of that moment for a year and a half, right? About every week or so, Daddy, do you remember when you dropped Wooly Blanket in the puddle? I'm like, yes, I remember, I'm sorry, right? Why did it matter so much to her? Because Wooly Blanket is what? Holy, Set apart, special. You don't treat it as common. You don't throw it in the mud. You don't treat it like a dish towel or a rag. It's special. God says to his people, you are set apart. You are holy. You're not for common use. And that's why the battle plan that I give you is going to be different. This also helps us understand, when we get into the middle of chapter 6, it helps us understand a little bit of why God says to them, you must destroy every living thing in Jericho. That's called the ban or harem in Hebrew. The idea is that God says, everything belongs to me. And here's the reason, because God says, the land I'm sending you to belongs to me. If my presence is there, it is holy, it is set apart, it is not meant to be used by idols. And for 400 years, the people of the Canaanites have been worshiping idols on my land and I have given them opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to change and to exercise faith in me. They have heard about the Israelites. They have heard about the God of Israel and still they rebel. And so God says, I am done with those people. Wipe them out. And he says, take all the gold, all the silver and dedicate it to my worship because he is holy. And his ways are different. And so when he calls them to walk around and around and around and never fight, but trust in him to fight for them, he's saying, I am holy. Just as you and I have been called to be holy. Interestingly, Peter, again, in First Peter, is the one who reminds us of God's words to his people. Be holy as I am holy. If you know Jesus this morning, you are called to be set apart, to be different, and given the power of the Spirit to follow him.
even when he asks that the way we use our money, our bodies, our time, our words, looks different. Because God wants his holiness to be seen in our imperfect lives. And so he gives them a different plan so they can see his holiness. And then the third aspect of character we see in this passage is the mercy of God. Look at verses 22 to 25, chapter 6. Joshua said to the two men who had spied out the land, Go into the harlot's house and bring the woman and all she has out of there as you have sworn to her. So the young men who were spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and her mother and her brothers and all she had. They also brought out all her relatives and placed them outside the camp of Israel. They burned the city with fire and all that was in it, only the silver and gold and articles of bronze and iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. However, Rahab the harlot and her father's household and all she had, Joshua spared. And she has lived in the midst of Israel to this day, for she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Now, if you don't remember who Rahab is, just a little refresher. When the first spies went in to spy out the land, uh, to spy out Jericho shortly before this battle. These weren't the 12 spies, but this is many years later. When the spies go in to spy out Jericho to come up with a battle plan, there's this woman, Rahab. And Rahab is the town prostitute. She is not what you would consider a righteous woman, at least in comparison to those around. And yet they go in and Rahab, of all the people, Rahab's the one that says to them, I have heard about you and about your God. And so she shelters them, and she protects them, and she sends them away in safety. Not primarily because Rahab is simply compassionate, but because of this. She believes in the power of Israel's God. And Rahab looks ahead, and she says, I know that this land belongs to God, and you guys are going to win. So I want to be on your side. And so she shelters them. And they promise her, when we take this city, you and your family will be saved. After the walls fall down. I've always envisioned sort of this picture. I don't know if you've ever thought about this. I've always envisioned this picture of they walk around on the seventh day seven times and the walls fall down and everything falls down except this one apartment, right? That houses Rahab and her family because of the mercy of God. Now, the amazing thing about this is, I think anybody in Jericho could have done what Rahab did, couldn't they? And yet it is Rahab, the one who is despised by her own culture, the one who is vulnerable, the one who is weak, that God reaches down and says, I'm going to save this one and her family. And in Hebrews eleven thirty one, the author of Hebrews comes back to this moment and says it's by faith that Rahab is saved because she sheltered those spies because she believed in the power of God. And so God, even in the midst of all of this destruction, shows mercy and says the one who trusts in me will be saved. And in fact, Joshua makes a point of telling us that Rahab and her family are there to that very day amongst the people of Israel. They became a part of the nation because of the mercy of God. 
I love it. We think about passages like this often, and we think, boy, there was a lot of destruction and a lot of death and a lot of chaos and a lot of carnage, but we see these moments in the midst of it where the character of God is revealed. And lest you think the God of the Old Testament is all anger and wrath and the God of the New Testament is all niceness and puppies, right? What you see is that the mercy of God is a thread that runs through both Testaments, old and new. And the holiness of God runs through both Testaments, old and new. Right? There will be war again when Jesus returns in Revelation 19 with a sword coming from his mouth and a robe dipped in blood. That won't be on the flannel graphs your kids see this morning in Sunday school. And yet at the same time, we see this thread of mercy that the God who loves his people gives them an opportunity to trust in him and receive salvation. Right now I'm reading with my middle daughter the book Charlotte's Web. Um, And uh, it's a great story about a pig and a spider, and a little girl. And the beautiful thing about this story is this, that, that Wilbur, the pig, really doesn't have a whole lot to commend people to him. Right? He's a little runty pig. Fern, the little girl, saves Char- uh, Wilbur because he is small, because he is needy, because he is vulnerable. Charlotte saves Wilbur. Why? Because Charlotte wants a friend and she says, I will be a friend to this pig. And Wilbur is a friend to Charlotte who nobody likes. And all the way through the story, there is this thread of caring for the one that nobody else will care for. The one that is vulnerable, the one that is destined for death. Uh, This story makes me cry at the end every time I read it, right? So I tell my kids, just allergies or whatever, you know, I just need a Claritin, you know, excuse me. Uh, I've seen it as a movie, I've watched it as a play, I've read the book, and every time, in every context, I cry. And the reason is this, because there is a theme that runs through this story of unconditional love and mercy. As you read the story of Joshua, as you read the scripture, you get that same sense, that the God who made you and me is a merciful God who allows people to exercise faith in him and be saved. And as Joshua and the Israelites execute this battle plan that is so strange, we see God's character so clearly revealed, his faithfulness, his holiness, and his mercy. And he says, I want you to do this differently because I want you to see who I am. And in the final analysis, what we see is that God's fame spreads when his people obey very last verse of chapter 6. So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame was in all the land. Joshua becomes famous, not because he's a rock star, but because of what God has done. And all of the people of Canaan hear about this God, and they have an opportunity to fear him, to trust him, And throughout the rest of the book of Joshua, some of them do, like Rahab. Most of them harden their hearts and are destroyed. But God's name and God's fame are spread across the earth. So you and I wonder, why is it that God asks me to do things differently? Why is it that God tells me, as a believer in Jesus Christ, to use my body differently, 
to approach my marriage differently, to raise my children differently, to approach school differently and work in a way that is consistently at odds with our world. Why is it I always feel this tension of the world says, this is the way to go. And I'm called to look so different, and it's hard often, and it's lonely, and it's hard to understand. And God says this, because I want you to know me and my character, and I want the world to know me and my character, and I am holy, and I am faithful, and I am merciful. And I want those around you, and I want you to know this, that the holiness of God demands punishment for sin, but the mercy of God sent Jesus, who was punished for your sin and rose again. And just as in the day of Joshua, all who will trust in him will have life. And everything you do through the power of God's Spirit is designed to be a testimony to that God. It may be that you're here this morning and you are just really meeting him through this passage this morning. And the Spirit of God may be working on your heart to say, trust in Jesus, that it is his mercy and grace that provides eternal life for all who will believe in him. It may be that you have walked with him for years and yet you still struggle with that tension. You're going to go to work tomorrow. No, you're not actually. You're going to go to work Tuesday, Wednesday. And you're going to face that tension. Will I live with integrity and character even if it costs me here? Will I speak the truth about God and his word and his ways even if it brings me the scorn of my coworkers, of my family, of my friends? Students, you may face it when you go to school in a week or so or in the fall and you find that as you live in the dorm, the way you live is constantly at odds with those around you. I remember facing that distinctly as a freshman and sophomore in college, going to live in a dorm where all of the usual college stuff was going on, whether it was alcohol or sex or just living for oneself and selfishness. And as I looked around, I saw a few men and women who had said, I am going to, through the power of God's Spirit, try to follow Jesus. I attached myself to those men and women, and together, imperfectly, we said, we're going to follow Jesus Christ in the midst of all of this chaos. And you know what? We were made fun of at times. We were ostracized at times. And yet, over time, men and women came to ask, why do you do that? Why do you live that way? Why are you different? And we had an opportunity Share the message of Jesus Christ. There may be some area of your life right now in which you sense God calling you to do something difficult, something that makes no sense to you. Will you obey? Because you know what he's calling you to do is be a vessel to display his perfect character to a world that is so desperately in need to see a glimpse of him. Would you pray with me? Father, we're grateful for your word. We're grateful for how even in what seems to be a difficult passage that seems filled with chaos and destruction and violence, even there we see your mercy and grace. 
And we see it now through Jesus, even in the middle of a world that is full of violence and chaos and immorality and destruction. We see you calling to us to be holy, to be set apart for your purposes. And I pray we would. We thank you for all you have provided for us in Jesus. And we praise you that now we have the chance to demonstrate your character and to share who you are with those who need to hear. I pray, give us strength and courage as we go out into our worlds this week and as we seek to be representatives of you. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful week.